Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Azarod, and I am joined by my co-host, Roger Armendariz. Today, we are going to be talking about the truth. This is the first part in our series, our philosophical toolbox of how we can talk with people, how we can relate to them, and how we can start analyzing very complex ideas. Nihilism, the idea that the world is void of all absolute truth, the sense that nothing can be fully proven and that all human endeavors eventually lead to absurdity. To give you a sense of how this might affect someone's life, I now turn to my co-host Roger, who's going to explain his journey from a Christian background into nihilism and how he got out of it. I grew up in a small little town in Kansas. Being one of the only Latino families there, I always struggled to find friends, but I always had a comfort that God was with me. And the reason I had that comfort was being of Mexican immigrants. I was raised Catholic. We'd go to church every day or every Sunday. And I genuinely had internalized the beliefs and all the myths that they would tell us. Until one day when I was five years old, I had a revelation. I had woken up early and my babysitter still was still sleeping. I knew she'd wake up at 7.30, so I had to wait for 30 minutes as it was still seven. As my five-year-old mind sat there trying to keep itself entertained, I grew more and more bored and more and more unstimulated. I didn't want to get up and make any noise as the rest of the house was still sleeping, but the boredom started to become unbearable. It was torturous. I couldn't find anything to do. I, I wanted to do just about anything like any other five-year-old wants to. And then what I started to realize was it had only been 10 minutes. A third of the time that I needed to bear before I could do anything fun had, already, had passed. And to me, it had felt like an eternity, which then in my five-year-old mind brought up the next question. If that felt like an eternity, what would eternity actually feel like? More importantly, what would an eternity of boredom feel like? And even at five years old, I then linked it to what at the time was my belief about the world. When you die, you go to heaven and you live in glory forever. Well then, if it's forever, do I get bored in heaven? And if I get bored in heaven, well then that means eventually it'll just always be boring which then eventually leads to infinite boredness, like boredomness. So that then becomes, you know, a horror show. It becomes the exact opposite of what you would expect heaven was. And this little thought that I had very quickly shattered all my ideas of what I thought laid in store for me in this life. My entire five-year-old conceptualization of reality collapsed in front of me. I kept thinking of all these different alternatives. Like, well, maybe you just never get bored in heaven. It's like, okay, well, am I still human then? Am I still me if I never get bored in heaven? What does that even mean? Does that mean I can just be entertained by just staring at my hand? Is that the being that I become when I die and go to heaven? Or is heaven so blissful that you're just always happy? But then again, I would think, well, does that mean that God is just passing out smack and getting everyone 
high as hell. Is that really be me still being a human being? And it was this weird contradiction that I had found that led me to eventually have to abandon my belief system that had been given by my parents. And as I got older, as I started hitting my teen years, I really had this constant sense of lack of direction. I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my life. I didn't even know what was supposed to be good or bad. I knew what people told me was good and bad. But when I would ask why, no one could ever really give me an explanation outside of like, well, that's what you're supposed to do, or that's what's expected of you, or well, that's what God wants you to do. And it's not that I didn't do it. I did naturally follow the same social order that everyone else did. But for me, I found myself more and more lost in what was supposed to be, what was I supposed to do? And even more importantly, why was I even doing it? And I think for a lot of people, especially if you lose your faith young, you start to lose a reason to get up. I think it very quickly leads first and foremost, for me, it led to a fear of death. If there is no afterlife, all right, well then there's one giant monster at the end of the story that nobody wants to face. And then came to depression. So the depression was life is terrible. Nothing matters. Everyone's lying to themselves to keep themselves happy until you die, which is also a horrible thing. And very quickly, I didn't quite have a name for this. It wasn't until I got into college and started to study philosophy that I finally found the name that was nihilism. For me, I see nihilism as the view that life is truly meaningless. The view, that, and by meaning, I mean that nothing matters. And since nothing matters, there's no ability for you to create a value system. You can't, you can create, you can make one, but deep down inside, you know you're just making one and there's no actual thing behind it outside of your lies. You telling yourself you're special, important and great, it's no different than you telling yourself you're the most handsome person in the world or the tallest person in the world. It's that they have the same reflections to reality. And once you're in there, I found very quickly, it led me to suicidal thoughts and the, some resentment of the world as though there was any alternative, right? That I wanted something else. And for me, I had to, it, it was the same motivation why I studied psychology and philosophy was trying to find ways to get out of this hole. Um, I did find several answers, but I find as I look around now, even more, this idea of nihilism, this, this perspective of nihilism, this nihilistic perspective is permeating through our entire culture. I see it in all our media. I see it in the humor, especially, specifically the humor that we, that we, that we enjoy. And I think the reason we enjoy it is because it reflects to us exactly the questions we're too scared to ask and face, but that we all inherently have. And it's, for example, Rick and Morty is a great example of that, right? They show you the horrors that you're so scared to look up, look at, but think about at night and then twist it in an unexpected way to make you laugh at your fear. Um, another great show that does this is corporate where it shows you, you know, late stage capitalism with a nihilistic twist, but it shows you it in such a truthful, raw way that you can only laugh at just how ridiculous 
yet accurate the reflection of your own life is. And I think, yeah, I, I think my journey to getting out of nihilism was being able to find an alternative conceptualization that didn't, that didn't just excuse away nihilism. Um, because so many therapy, so many theories of the world and theories of reality seem to just excuse nihilism away. They don't actually take it on as an actual problem. Um, it's like, for example, terror management theory, this idea of like, well, if you think about death, you tend to be pretty miserable and actually your entire body's evolved for you to not think about death. That to me was always never struck me very accurate because for me, it might have been that I was just too young when this happened, but I couldn't ever not stop, couldn't stop thinking about that, right? It was a constant traumatic thing that I was just like, also, why is not no one else talking about the fact that we all die here? Like, it seems like an important fact that everyone just seems to gla like gleam over. And the second, and those theories where it's just like, oh, you just kind of don't think about it, don't look at it, which seems to also even Rick and Morty's Rick, you know, main motto is, well, just don't think about it too much. It's like, well, no, that's not really a solution now, is it? That's just, that's just a way to make yourself feel better, but it's not exactly a solution. And it wasn't until I found works such as Carl Jung uh, that offers a very different perspective that the aim that helped me, that was to aim for a life that justifies even the worst interpretation of reality, which is that nothing else matters. While nihilism can make us laugh, make us question things that we once held to be sacred, there is a very dark side to it as well. If we take humor to its utmost extreme in the absurdity, we can start finding ourselves making very, very nasty jokes. We can start making fun of people's suffering. We can start trivializing or making memes over a huge blum blunder, over starvation, over human suffering beyond, beyond comparison. Nihilism does expose the holes in Christian thought. It exposes the holes in our capitalist system, in communism, in any system whatsoever. It allows us to break free of whatever traditional trains may bind us as a society. However, if we just keep walking down the dark tunnel of nihilism, we're left with no answers. A lot of this is further reinforced in our education system and within our universities. We are taught that truth is not something that exists outside a laboratory. There is no longer any truth in our ancient texts. There is no longer any truth in the Bible or in ancient Greek philosophers. But without empirical evidence, without a 0.9 correlation, truth is completely divorced from our world. And without positive results, it's not worth looking at. And it gets even stranger now with the, this new, the, the ideas of postmodernism post kind of spreading now, where even those truths are now suspect, right? Like now it's, it's a matter of like, well, why are those truths held as true compared to other truths? And why is it also very convenient that those truths give power to some and not to others, right? And like, it, it's, I, I feel like nihilism came in as like the side effect of us creating a system of knowledge that undermined 
the previous system of knowledge. Like we had religion and we're like, hey, we really want to understand God's world. So let's create this thing that measures God's world, science. And then eventually science got so strong that's like, hey, uh, yeah, by the way, all those stories you guys keep telling yourselves, like those, those don't make any sense. There's no way from what we understand that that could have actually happened. And then like they undermines itself. And then this weird new, it, it's like a, a, a re, retooling of, an old, of old philosophies of this idea is like, well, everything's an interpretation, right? Yeah. First, and, first and foremost, like that's what it is. And, and you know, Roger, I, I feel like we can't build a moral system from nothing. Like science can teach us about physics. It can teach us about gravity, but it can't teach us to be good people. For that, we must stand on the shoulders of our ancestors and gain and glean as much wisdom from them as possible. There might be things that no longer exist. Like, I don't know the value in sacrificing a lamb. Like, I don't think that's going to make my life any better by smearing the blood on someone's door. But I think there might be some truth in honor thy parents or maybe not committing adultery. So I think that science does provide us with physical truths about our world, but we can't just throw away the moral uh, bedrock there in which our civilization is built upon. Well, yeah, to some extent I do agree. Cause I, I think, I think a part of it is that the, the, you know, both the science, both the empiricists, the people that just means people that like believe that our knowledge should be based on evidence and physical evidence specifically. And the postmodernists are more like the interpretation of the world would both say is like, look, your ideas of morals are mostly just your ideas that you've created and put on. So therefore that means entire cultures and histories, their ideas are just a cultural construction that they use to organize their society. And therefore morals can, can to some extent be quite malleable, right? They can, they can either be completely shifted or, you know, pretty close to anything, I guess the way I see it personally is that the moral structures that we use to get this far, like the rules and which were, you know, like that's what, what religion essentially is, is a bunch of rules of how you're supposed to live when you're around each other, which then gets later becomes social laws. It's like, those are things that were derived because they worked Mm. right. That that's the one thing that I feel like a lot of people don't, don't give enough credit to it's like it just worked it's like all right yeah like the fact that it got us this far does does at least give some credence to the fact that if we organize ourselves in that way our society will be able to make it at least through you know at least to this far as you know it's worked this far it doesn't necessitate we can't change it and shouldn't change it it just means we're currently working on a model that so far has worked now does it work for everyone probably not that would be a very impressive achievement to I've gotten anyway, but, and we can definitely improve it. But I I also think this idea of just immediate radical change from, from abstractions presumes that we know a lot more about where these rules came from and how they developed than I think we actually do. Yeah, I think you're completely right on that, Roger. I think one of the things that kind of attacks people's minds is when there's something that has lost its utility value. It's no longer of use for us. So for example, within the Bible, there might be things about uh, homosexuality or, or things that science have kind of shown to be okay or natural. And for most people, if there's one or two or three things or even 10 things 
that they disagree with, they now have to completely, under the postmodern framework, have to abandon absolutely all of it. And I think that we need to start teaching people how we can grasp and how we can deal with wisdom and truth without necessarily taking the theory or the concept in its entirety. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because they, to some extent, I, I, and I can't say I'm an expert by any means or, or even that I even have grasped their concept completely. So I don't want to, you know, accidentally misframe them. But from my understanding, their main argument is, is to, to some extent implies that people are at least essentially uh, blank slates or in the sense that like the idea shapes you, right? So it's more like the idea infects you and then you fall into it. So that's the idea behind deplatforming, mm. right? You're not smart enough to rationalize your way out of fascism. If enough fascists keep talking to you, eventually you'll just adapt that idea because that, you know, you're, that it, it kind of takes away the credit of an individual to be able to ration their way out of it. It's yeah. So it's like, it's like the more I'm exposed to this, the more free speech we have, where like someone's just talking, you know, some crazy Nazi stuff, the more I'm willing to actually take this on and view the world in that way and do, do that kind of stuff. Right. And the, you know, Roger, it kind of reminds me of this quote, uh, Mussolini made the trains run on time. That was actually later uh, proven not to be true, but I, the quote has always stuck with me. And let's just suppose for a minute that under a fascist system, the trains do run on time. I live in New York City and the trains never run on time. They are always mm -hmm. late. People are always running late to work. But imagine you have fascism as like a 100% pure ideology and there's a police state and there's uh, Gestapo and all of these hard actors. But then there's this like one positive thing with the trains running on time, which is really, really, really nice. Is it possible to reject the surface of fascism, but then take and extract that one little thing, like a transit system that operates on time from it? Yeah. I, well, I guess to some extent it's like, why did it? Right. Like, cause I, cause, cause that, that, that is a good question though. Cause it's like, what's that line? How, because yeah like for example like with your example it depends why they were on time if they were on time because it's like oh you know the the italian government just designed such a great you know metro system that allowed everyone <laughs> to like do something that they weren't able to be, be you know before able to do on times like yeah that should probably be worth us investigating in the modern times if the reason they were on time was because if they weren't on time they'd get killed or shot it's like okay maybe <laughs> we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't be so quick to just presume that that's actually a good idea but i think I think it requires that sort of like divvying up, right? Of being like, okay, well, what's uh, like, for example, uh, we can do, we can take it the other way, right? We can go to our canceling of artists. Mm. Like a lot of artists do a lot of really messed up stuff, right? They're having sex with children. They're, they've been accused of like sexual improprieties of all sorts. You know, it's like, and, I, I think of, Bill Cosby in a way. And yeah. he's a guy towards the, you know, end of his career really ruined everything. But if you watch the Cosby show, there is a wholesome message there. Like he does teach, uh, he does provide like a framework of an African American family that's successful. He plays a doctor, his wife is a lawyer. And the overall, 
reception of that show was extremely positive, but here's a man that's deeply flawed and in prison. Do we 100% reject everything that he preached as being uh, that of a false prophet, or is there some ray of, of, of intelligence in what he did with his life? Right. I always think of it like, I always think of like music, because I think music's the easiest one, because it's the one you constantly repeat consumption of. So like Michael Jackson, right? Like, yeah. Unarguably one of the most famous music stars of all times. Also uh, accused by multiple people of being a child predator. Like guy that sold the most amount of albums and had like, so had broken records when he, when he was there also accused with quite a lot of evidence of likely doing some of the most heinous things that, any individual can be accused of it's like all right where's the line right how mm. many how many children have to be abused before we're like yeah you can't be listening to michael jackson man that's like the minute you do that you're now just supporting someone who and then you know and then it gets even weirder because now that he's passed away mm. can you even address those situations right because now he can't defend himself so like i i feel like the the biggest issue once you get into this idea that people can become persona non grata, right? Like on, you have to draw a line somewhere. You have to say this things are okay. These things aren't. And I think at that point, because humans are just humans, at least in my, my view of humanity is that we're all just horrible people in, in some ways and great people and great people and great, great in other ways. I think that you have to always just accept that people are going to be shitty in plenty of ways. So this, you know, I, I want to ask you this question, Roger, if you were the owner of a tavern or a nightclub, would you play Michael Jackson songs? Because I mean, they, they are of extreme musical uh, worth and like perhaps other musicians or young kids might hear these songs and that might inspire them uh, to create and produce their own music. So if you were a, a, a tavern or nightclub owner, would you play Michael Jackson? Yeah. And I, I assuming here that I like, it was like, a to, just to make it more clear on my end, it'd be like a eighties themed bar or something, <laughs> right? Like sure. so, something where that, that truly like would require, like you can't be like an eighties themed bar and not be playing Michael Jackson. Right. Um, yeah. Unless, unless you're doing it out of principle. And yeah, for me, I, I, I'm a person that believes that you, you can and need to separate the art from the artist. Um, I, I also apply that to ideas because I mean, all, all an art, all art is, is an expression of an idea, right? So that I apply that to philosophy too. It's like, there's certain people, like there's certain philosophers that for example, are associated with, uh, with uh, the Nazi party. Yeah. but they're also held as like pretty good philosophers that were able to contribute to human knowledge. And I, I think there's always that hard line of like, look, if so, what someone says was true or at least valuable in some way, does anything else change? Right? Like it, for me, I've always thought about it. Like if we resurrected Hitler and he came out and said, the sky is blue, like, should you disagree with him? No, that's very true. I mean, there were many philosophers. I think Heidegger was one of them that right. like lived under Nazi tyranny. And I guess the question you have to ask yourself is like, 
they may have been great philosophers and were they kind of just bending their message because if they didn't bend their message, they themselves might have been put into a concentration camp and killed themselves. And I know that it, it you know, here in the 21st century, we would be like, oh, well, I would have died for my convictions. But I, I offer to the table, would you have really, would you really have stood up to the Nazis and said, no, this is my worldview and I'm going to publish whatever it is that I want to publish? Right. And it, it also depends. <laughs> it, it depends what view you take, right? Like if like my personal view is like your convictions are only as strong as you've developed them. Mm. And most people don't develop their convictions. Most people, most people believe things, but when you ask them why they believe them aren't able to actually explain why. And right. I think that's kind of the postmodern point that like, look, if you like, yeah, sure. There's some people that are super interested in knowing how they think, but most people aren't. Most people just repeat what they hear. So if you just keep exposing them to bad ideas, they'll start repeating bad ideas, right? So like that's their argument, which to some extent I, I get, right? Like you can see how that would work. And I think to some extent it, it maps onto like Nazi Germany where it's like, okay, this constant information flow just keeps coming and more and more people buying in. But at the same time, I don't know if that necessarily works in the same way. Cause like I look at, cause this idea of post-truth I think falls apart one with the internet and two with coronavirus, right? Like, and there, there is, there, there is truth. Like for example, if we compared 1950s America to Nazi Germany, I think that we could say like by some objective measure that living in a, you know, uh, booming capitalist democratic country, that is a lot better than living in a fascist country. That is a lot better than living in a communist nation. And I would say that the nihilists would kind of argue, oh, they're all one and the same, or it doesn't really matter if there is a difference. But I think when we really think about these things very hard and very deeply, like, well, okay, what makes America special? What makes it great? What are some of its flaws? What are the things that it's doing wrong? And you have like a, some type of pros and cons list. I, I think we can arrive at some, some level of truth. It's not pure truth. There might be one thing that was, you know, there might be a few things even that were being done in the Soviet Union that were done better in America. That's fair game. But I think if you, if you don't do the hard work of listing all of those things out, you're never really going to know. Yeah, I, I think the nihilists would likely just point to the po the idea of like, well, everything you're pointing to, you're you're assuming that there's a collective under that this more, more postmodernist, but the postmodern would just kind of be like, look, you're assuming that we all agree on the definition of better. Mm, yeah, right. That's true it's too. like it's like if you're a white supremacist, right? It's like you're like, no, I'll take Nazi Germany, right? And if you're like a hardcore Marxist, you're like, no, nah, like I think they were doing a better attempt at like dismantling the capitalist structure than we currently are so i would rather be there but it's it's a, the bet the better in that statement is determined by what you actually care about would be their point uh so one thing that i want to say here is like can we as a world like come to a collective agreement as to what is the most truth truthful or beneficial lifestyle. So the nihilist will be like, oh, well, this is perfect for a white supremacist. Oh, this is uh, perfect for someone who is a communist and so forth. And we have all of these perspectives balancing with one another through discussion and, and through 
uh, dialogue, is it possible that we could somehow, you know, and, and again, the world is really vast, like, right? It's extremely vast. Like there's people who speak different languages than you, grew up in different customs and just have a whole nother way of life. But do you think that there are truths out there that the world can kind of hold on to or, or, or are we beyond uh, that? I think so. I think there's a couple of truths that we kind of have to have because like that's kind of the, the why I really like Jung and his idea of archetypes because it's kind of like uh, if you want to play the game and that this game is existence, right? Like that human life exists. It's like there are certain prerequisites that need to be met. If those prerequisites are not met, then life just doesn't exist. It's like, therefore, the things that make life exist are the things that, you know, are kind of required for the game to exist. And one of them is kind of like the evolutionary viewpoint, right? Like we're constantly having to adapt to our surroundings. That is a human universe. Absolutely, yes. Right? So therefore, there's the only presupposition you have to have, and there is an argument mostly from the nihilists here, is like, life is valuable or life mm. should be valuable that's I, the should I, that you that you have to imply because like a nihilist might just be like no actually you should just kill yourself because life is meaningless you're suffering and you're just postponing the thing that's going to happen to you anyway i think that the preservation of life has always been something that as a collective norm and, and yes there have been suicidal people and there have been people that suffered a variety of different mental illnesses and so forth but it's like the exception cannot be the rule. Like many people think, well, th there was this one guy like Hemingway killed himself. Therefore, not everyone values self-preservation. I, I think under the nihilist framework, they take one example, one outlier, and then they dismiss the whole concept that every civilization does what's in its best interest to survive, to do whatever it takes to see tomorrow. I mean, if you look at our early uh, river valleys, like people settled near the Nile River, near the Tigris, near the Euphrates, because there was water there. They adapted to what would ensure that they could see tomorrow. And to basically say that, no, that's just relative or that's just a matter of perspective, I, I think you're, you're, look, you're overlooking so much, you're, you're overlooking the great preponderance of evidence in favor of just a few outliers. Yeah, it, I don't even think it's so much like life is life itself is valuable but rather the i guess a more abstract way of putting this would be that the game if that the game that we're playing is worse is worth continuing right mm -hmm. and, and and i mean that collectively not just individualistically like individualistically it's like yeah i'll kill myself and then that's my game that ends but collectively as in all humanity is it is like should all humanity continue to exist and then when people answer no to that that's how you get the school shooters. That's how you get all these like mass people that are just like humanity's a scum. They're a virus. We should eliminate them. Well, right? you know what, Roger, let's fast forward. Let's go all the way to the end of nihilism. And let's just say, for example, I am in the school shooter state of mind. And I believe that all humans are selfish, disgusting parasites, right? And, and like, you know what? There's actually some evidence to say we're polluting the environment, we kill other animals, and we dominate, you know, the entire world. It, it's like there is an argument made that, like, we are doing some damage to the earth. What is, like, the rope that pulls that school shooter out of that and say, wait a minute? you do deep inside of you have an urge to continue 
propagating and to continue this collective civilization of humans. Well, it's, it's the filter of his ideology, right? Like the filter of his ideology is only allowing him to see only the most negative aspects of humanity mm-hmm. and then devalues everything else. Like the, the issue with humanity is that like, first and foremost, the fact that we're destroying the earth is a tragedy, right? It's a horrifying tragedy. That's like, Jesus Christ, we're destroying the very thing that we all rely on. But let's not pretend like the earth hasn't been trying to destroy us since we existed. Right, right. right. There's the second narrative of like, no, this has always been a battle. It's just, it turns out that we've gotten really good at fighting it. And now we're like, oh, wait, we might actually win this. And we can't win against earth because then we both lose, right? So it's this idea of like the entire struggle for us to get here was us just trying not to die on earth could right? i, on could the I ask nature. You, so an example of like the earth trying to destroy us would be like let, let's say we had like an ice age and it was extremely cold and human beings were on the verge of like freezing their behinds off and just dying right us using fossil fuels to warm ourselves is us battling the earth but when we use those fossil fuels we kind of went too far and destroyed the ozone layer Right. Yeah. Like once, because it well, essentially we've, we've used like, how did we get to this problem? Right. Like we've used earth's resources, which were nourishing and like allowed us to live to survive on all the ways that it doesn't allow us to live. Right. To make harsh environments more habitable, to find food where food normally wouldn't be there, to create more food and efficiency, to create machines that allow us to do more than physically we were able to do the industrial revolution and all those things. So it's like, it's like, if you see the story of humanity or even just life, cause like everyone likes to start at humans, but it's like, that's not, that's, that's just where you're choosing to start seeing the story like see it as all of life. It's like, we've been like clawing our way into existence with no regard for us, right? Like mm. there's just, there hasn't been much helping hands here. It's and like we learned to do this completely on, on just out of ourselves. And like, there's adaption. No, and there's like few other animals that have that kind of altruism to them. Like, I don't think that a wolf would lend a helping paw to, to, to kind of like help us out. I think, I think every animal is fighting for the dominance of themselves and they are fighting for the dominance of their species. They're, they're not necessarily, and like people are like, we're talking about animals that are non-carnivores that, that eat plants. Well, that animal is still eating a plant. And by definition, a plant is a living organism. So they're still kind of detracting away from the earth. Even if you're just eating plants, you're still consuming earth's resources for the benefit of yourself and of your species. Right. It was just like I said, it's it's the continue. They're all playing the same game. Continuing Mm. the game is worth the effort, right? Like that's the main basic rule. It's like, it is worth the effort to live most of my life scared as hell of lions running and eating plants most of the time, just so I can eventually maybe mate once and have a kid. Mm. My entire existence is worth that, right? Like that's almost every animal's basic story, right? Like including our own. I want to throw one out to you. I was having this conversation a few weeks ago uh, about Russia during Stalinist times. And during the great famines, what would sometimes happen is that a, a group of Russians would get together and they would go to their neighbor and they would tell their neighbor, 
hey, uh, would you guys like to come take a walk with us? Or just we're just going to go over here and get some food or something. And they and their neighbor would go for a walk. And these Russians were so hungry that they would actually kill their own neighbor and resort to cannibalism. They would just absolutely eat their neighbor in order to survive. So I guess one question we have to ask is when are we going too far in our own survival? Like at what point is it kind of like, because I think there is a point in our existence where it's like, you know what, I, I think it's better I just starve to death and not eat my neighbor. So I, I think that's a really dark thing that we also kind of have to grapple because yes, uh, the story of humanity is surviving, but is there an ethical line that we as a species are not willing to cross? Oh, I think we're definitely willing to cross it. I know yeah. I'm willing to cross it. I, I've had intense experiences. Uh, when I was in Cambodia, I served in the Peace Corps. And when I was in Cambodia, I had gotten excessively sick and was, I just had really bad dysentery and diarrhea and was losing a lot of water extremely quickly. Um, I got, I rushed to, I got rushed to the ER and in the ER, it just, it wasn't stopping. I was just losing way too much water. And it got to the point where I was extremely dehydrated. And a thought occurred to me that was, if there was a glass of water here, I would literally kill my mother. And like that horrified me that I had that thought. Like it wasn't like I purposely chose to have that thought. It was just like this weird realization that just popped in my head. And what scared me was right now, I'm in it. Like it, it, it was like my brain was just like, once it, once that survival mode kicked in, it was like all your old value system, all that shuts up. Like what needs, what needs to happen right now is you get water, no matter what's in your way. Right. And like, I feel like that's why to me, like if you're starving and it's even worse, if you're starving and your family's starving, the people you are responsible for, I think it's only a matter of time before you, before you break. I think it was, uh, I can't remember the psychologist, but he's, he's the, the, I can't remember the name, but he, he's the grandfather of behaviorism. Skinner, mm, I think. Skinner, yeah. And he said, uh, I can make any man drink a glass of water. Wow. He's like, wow. given enough time. He's I, like, any man. I, can, I, I to, can make him do what I want him to do with just a glass of water. I do. I want to push back on that a little bit, Roger. And, and like I said, I haven't been to Cambodia, so I have no idea what, how I would react if like I needed that glass of water. I want to take like a figure though, such as Gandhi, for example. And Gandhi went on a number of hunger strikes uh, throughout his time in India. And he was visited by doctors who were like, if you don't eat something within the next 24 hours, you will die. Like, like just matter of fact. And he, he would have died. And, you know, if you follow the history of Gandhi, you know, the country of India at the very last second, when they knew Gandhi was like on the verge of dying, they would, oh, right, right, right. we came up with some kind of peace accord or some kind of agreement of, of dividing the country between India and Pakistan. So I'm wondering, Roger, like, is, are there other humans, like, is there other examples of people who would have starved to death, but there was some other higher objective and some higher purpose that we can find in life that would actually allow us uh, to basically starve to death for some higher mission or some higher purpose, which I think is, I think yeah. Gandhi is like a recreation of the Christ story. Like basically mm -hmm. like I am going to crucify myself for the good of humanity. Right. So do you think that there's a way 
that we can transcend that biological urge to, to just survive or is that too powerful? I think the difference is voluntary of whether you choose to be in that situation or not, right? Like Gandhi actively chooses to put himself in a hunger strike. He actively has chosen to suffer. But I think that is very, very different from when suffering is just directly imposed on you. You know what I mean? Like, like if, if from the start, I'm like, okay, I am just going to dehydrate myself. And this is actually going to be, let's say, like to like save my mother. Right. And it's the exact same question. It's like, okay, a glass of water or your mother or your mother hurts. Then I think it's a very different setting where I'm like, no, yeah, like I'm dying. Like, I'm going to do everything I can to die. And maybe I'm just delusional in that, right? Like it, it might just be that case that like by day three, I'm like, nope, sorry, mom. But like, but it's, it's one of those things where in that sense, I think there probably is like a bigger, a bigger case. But for example, like the Russian one, which I'm guessing like more on the Ukrainian end, uh, when you're being starved for nothing and there's no, there's no purpose or point to it, um, when, and especially like if other people that you love and care about that literally define everything that you value are also starving and dying. It's like, I think at that point, people, people will do whatever they're willing to do. For example, like I mentioned, I served in Cambodia and Cambodia is a, a post, a post conflict place. They, they had a genocide, a horrifying genocide that honestly most people don't even know. It was, it's very surprising just oh, how God. yeah it's yeah just terrible. how bad it was um but one of the main things that they did was they sold all their rice to china for weapons right so the people like the actual people just didn't have any food uh, normally they'd have one one bag uh, or like one ball of rice per day and just the effect that that had if you go to cambodia now you'll find people eating insects tarantulas intestines uh dogs the, 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 literally everything, everything and anything, anything that's bush meat um, and even things that aren't. And that all comes from the desperation of just hunger, just starvation. It changed the culture like excessively. And I don't know if this, if the greeting itself was from gen, from the genocide, but it fits pretty well in the way you say hello in Cambodian is Yambai now, which basically means have you eaten yet? Wow. Right? That's how you greet yourselves. Like, have you eaten yet? And then if, if someone says no, it is extremely disrespectful to not offer them food, right? And like, no matter how much or how little you have, you could be the brokest farmer and barely have enough for your family. If someone comes over and, or even if just you ask the question, it's like, oh no, I actually, I actually haven't eaten. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, come join us, come, come eat, right? It, it, so like this idea of just how bad like it, I think so many people, especially in modern times, don't, they think that they are who they are when they're comfortable. And right. in reality, it's like, no, you're an extremely, extremely satiated primate that doesn't have any needs almost all of your life. Mm. It's like the minute we take you out of that situation, you are not the same animal anymore, right? Like I put you, if I take you and put you in the bush in Cambodia and leave you with nothing, and come back to you on two days, you're no longer going to be the same person. You haven't eaten, you haven't slept, you haven't gotten any water and like super extreme humidity. Like you will become a different person very, very quickly. You will not be the same saint you think you are. Let me ask you this, Roger. 
you said that there was a distinction between Gandhi and, and someone starving in Cambodia in the sense that Gandhi inflicted this upon himself for the uh, liberation of, of India. So he, he chose to suffer and, and potentially die. What if you say to yourself, though, you're, you're starving in Cambodia or in some other or in, in Ukraine or Russia, and you say to yourself, okay, and you think about it, and, and maybe, maybe in a state of starvation, your, your mind is not even this fluid anymore, but you might say to yourself, if I kill my neighbors, what kind of life am I going to live after that? Like, how am I going to live with myself? How am I, is life even worth living anymore? Like, is it something like, even though I'm not, this starvation has been inflicted upon me from like an external force, it might come to a point where it's like the lack of, the lack of self-respect that I would have for life itself if I ate my neighbors would just nullify existence in itself. Like it's not even worth, because the thing about uh, the story uh, in which I was talking about with those Russians is that some Russians chose to resort to cannibalism, but others just starved to death. So I think there are some people who, even when they are being forced to starve to death, some do choose like, yep, I'm just going to starve here. I'm not going to kill somebody. And they did, they did in fact starve to death while others resorted to cannibalism. Oh yeah. But I mean, and by no means am I saying like, everyone's just going to be <laughs> like going full zombie. Like, but, but it's more a matter of a, uh, I don't find it shocking that that's what some people would result to. Right. Like, I, and, and to some extent I, I, I'm sympathetic to it though. Not like, good jobs you know but more like yeah in that situation i can see the rationale that people would go through um but at the same time i also think different people are capable of doing different things right like in that situation there's only two options right you either give up or you don't right if right. you're someone who has chosen that's like no matter what i'm gonna try to survive this and that's the only game plan left right? Then you either hit that choice. You're either look like you just wait this out and die. And that was, that's your life. That's the game. Or you do the only option that you feel yourself you shouldn't do, but maybe, and again, it could be, I'm just trying to think of different ways that could be not justify this, but at least rationalize it where there's, there's a re there's reasons why you'd be like, okay, I can see why you would do it. Even if I personally wouldn't, um, the, like the child example, Right. It's like, cool. You're going to be the person that's now a murderer and a monster, but your child continues to live. Right. And maybe right. you never tell them this event happened, or maybe you put it in a context where they won't understand, but mm. they get a shot. I, I think like, like again, and, and full preface, I've never been myself in a situation of, of full starvation and deprivation. So I have no idea, like, this is how I would act. I would like to think that if I got to that level and I looked around me, I, I would say to myself, there is some purpose for this suffering. There is some higher form out there. And like, although this seems like my starvation seems extremely meaningless right now in the moment, I think kind of holding on to something above me would kind of get me through it and, and even give me sort of an acceptance that like, yes, I am going to starve in this, in this, on this rock right here, but because I had some higher purpose and it could be something like keeping my child alive. It could be keeping my neighbor alive, or it could just be that maybe my starvation will transmit to the rest of the world and teach us a valuable lesson 
that I would right. be able to deal with it. But again, you you know, Roger, like I, I, I do got been a question this. for you. Yeah, absolutely. I have a question on your on that end. Then, what would you say then? What is braver, choosing to not murder someone, in the sense of in allowing you and your child to die, or choosing to break your own moral code and become this horrible person that you know killed someone and ate them for the, and be in consciously and willingly being willing to become that for the sake of an innocent child, which is your child. Right. Cause I think, like, like I, I see both ends on that, I guess, but I think I, we're also getting tuned to it. <laughs> no, this is good. And, and I think, I think this is the difficulty that people need to grapple with. Like pe- people think that it's going to just be an easygoing, like have some coffee podcast, but no, like this is actually at the crux of nihilism. And it's good that we're discussing this. Um, in terms of bravery, I'm not sure which route is the braver route. I would say that the moral high ground would be the route of resignation. Like I, I would think you would come to a point where it's like, I am meant to die right now. Like, like there's nothing I can do to survive. There's no food, there's no water available. No one wants me to live. However, just because I've been destined to die, I'm not going to sentence someone else to that death. So I would say that the moral high ground in that scenario is like, I accept that I am going to die, but I will not impose that death sentence upon someone else. They may very well starve on their own accord, but I'm not going to be the the executioner that makes that happen. Right. I I guess the biggest issue there is just, it's it's those claims to morals that I think nihilists and especially postmodernists would both disagree with. It's the idea of like, right, but that's just your value system that you've decided to follow. Like that doesn't mean... And, and that's why nihilism for me isn't so much a belief system itself. It's more an abandonment of belief systems, if that makes mm. sense. So like, yes. it's, not, it's not like nihilism tells you what to do, which is one of the biggest problems. It's like, once you adapt nihilism, you're like, great, now what? Like, there's no mode of action. Even if it's like, oh, kill yourself. It's like, well, no, even in nihilism, that, there's nothing that tells me I should do that either. It's like, it tells you nothing because there is nothing. So it just leaves you spinning in circles with literally no direction to be able to aim at anything, but then no alternative to believe in anything either. I I will say this though. I think that if you were starving and you were a nihilist, the default preset would be to make sure that you're comfortable at all costs necessary. It may not directly tell you to do that, but because there's no higher force judging you, there's no higher moral standard, there's no god or there's no anything above you that's going to be like wow i don't think you made the right choice down there i think you're just going to assume well because there's no morals whatsoever the best choice that i can make is to keep myself alive and and therefore i will do whatever it is that that takes so uh, even though nihilism doesn't say that that's the right way to go i think the default setting if you would would be to just keep yourself alive and comfortable Oh, perfect. Yeah, because see, that then brings me to what I think nihilism actually, practically speaking, is. I don't believe nihilism functions the way it normally is abstracted to say it functions. Or like, what I mean by that is like, when someone says they're nihilists, more than likely, that's not actually true. Right. Um, right. Cause mostly because, okay, let's just think of the definition of morals. Well, morals is just about how you should act 
during your life? What is it that you should do? Okay. It defines what's the important things in life and what, how should you act? Well then if nihilism is kind of direct rejection of values as a whole, that, that life is meaningless and therefore there is no inherent value within anything that you're doing, mm. then there's an impossible, there's you, you have a impossible, con- uh, somewhat of a contradiction here of, well, then how are you supposed, when you wake up at like you're laying in your bed, you wake up, you're now a fully committed nihilist. What do you do? Do you get out of bed? Yeah. You turn on the light. Do you bother to go to this job? Do you bother to say hello to any partner you have? Do you bother washing your clothes? Do you bother washing your hair? Like, do you bother doing like every single possible action has an implicit value within it? I, I think to answer your question, if you can, I mean, you know, nihil- there's probably some nihilists that are so depressed they can't get out of bed. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. I would think for the nihilists that can get out of bed, the only thing that they can really cling to is their own self-gratification. I think the only thing that they're going to be able to do is just seek pleasure. It could be pleasure in the form of drugs. It could be pleasure in the form of sex or or some kind of addiction. So I I think in that sense, it's not that they're being told that pleasure is the supreme value. So they, they, they don't live in a world of any value. So they can't say that pleasure is the supreme value. But it's the most what they think to be the most comforting. They think that that's going to bring them the most happiness. So again, it's the default option of like, since I have no meaning, I'm going for pure pleasure because I think it will make me happy. But I I think that that's kind of what I mean is like, but then at that point, they're no longer nihilists, they're hedonists, right? Like, so like nihilism as a whole collapses in itself because Mm. there's a required value system for you to even act. So right, therefore, right. so like nihilism destroys it. And if you rationalize like, well, I'm a nihilist, nothing matters. It's like, all right, well then enjoy not moving because mm-hmm. any move you do presumes that that move is going to be better than the previous scenario. Cause otherwise why waste the energy, right? That to finish up this, this thought is like, so for me, when someone like seems to feel nihilistic, what I think tends to happen is, I'm a nihilist, so I'm going to not follow any beliefs of structure. And if they, even if they truly kind of feel that, what actually tends to happen is, well, that just means you're not conscious of what belief structure you are following. Right. right? You still act in the world. You still live. And therefore, you are still following things that you value. You may, but you, now you just don't know what the hell you even value. Right. So I, I think you're right. I think nihilism does lead to self-preservation slash pleasure-seeking values. Like, I I agree with you. You do become a bit of a hedonist uh, once you adapt nihilism. However, I would say that while you're seeking those pleasures, senseless pleasures, materialism, uh, drug use, and so forth, some of these people that are highly depressed might start cutting themselves or they might engage in self-mutilating behavior. So there might be this like goal of like pleasure, 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 but then they go home and hit themselves or engage in self-cutting or some other kind of mutilating behavior, or they, they end up eventually committing suicide, God forbid. Um, so I, I think that they kind of have like these contradictory uh, value systems. One value system is saying, well, life is meaningless, seek pleasure. And then life is meaningless, kill yourself. So I think that those two value systems are fighting one another, like in your head 24 seven. It's like a complete nightmare to live in that. Yeah. Well, like I've literally been in the thing you're describing and it, it only the, the rationale is a little bit different. It, for me, it functioned as 
I was seeking pleasure because it was like, well, that, that seems to be the only thing that can be done. That's good. Or like that, the, like I like in, you know, intrinsically, it's like, why do you like sex? Like, come on. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like, like that's not a question. It's like, why do you like, why do you like greasy food? It's like, I, you know, like obviously why, but they do seem extremely shallow and you can get your fill of it for a while. Like, you know, you get that dopamine kick of that sugars, those sugar highs and all that stuff. But it, then it just goes away. Um, and what I found with like the self mutilation was it does, it's like a, sh a low version of what I was telling you when I was dehydrated, it takes away all other value systems and puts only the, the current threat in your mind. And for me, I would always do it to kind of escape the, the natural suffering that you had by just being stuck in loops of like, I'm going to die someday or, you know, all these like fear inducing thoughts turns out when the body's damaged or hurt or thinks it's hurt immediately, it pushes all of that away. And for me, it went from like, I was kind of cutting and then I noticed in high school that people would get weird reactions if I was doing that. So it's like, all right, uh, what's a way I can get hurt and no one says anything. So I switched to boxing. Right. Right. It's like, I'd show up with like, I'd show up with like a cut in my arm and I'm like, Oh my God, what happened? I show up with a black guy and like, Oh, that's so cool, man. Badass. Right. Like very <laughs> different social cues. But for me, it was the exact same effect. When someone punches you in the face, like Tyson, Mike Tyson has a great quote on this. It's like, everyone has a plan when they get in the ring until they get punched in the face. Right. And right. it's that idea of like you, you get this weird instant clarity when they're, when like your fight or flight kicks in that like everything else doesn't matter. What matters is you surviving right now. And it's kind of like a break from your, from, especially if you're a nihilist from an existential dread that you're feeling most of the time. That's like always like a, a, a low simmer that you're feeling most of the day. Right. Right. No, I, I, I thank you. I, I, I've, I've, that that explains it very well. Do you think though that like um, outside of the self mutilating behavior that suicidal ideation and nihilism do kind of go hand in hand in the sense that like you might be uh, you know pursuing the sugar pursuing the pleasure activities, but the backdrop of that pleasure seeking behavior has like life is meaningless therefore suicide is the path did you feel that that was like the back like kind of what tolstoy said that that's like the third level like where uh the backdrop of it all is like you should just kill yourself uh kind of like for me to some extent but not completely it all depends how you conceptualize it because for me what i did find was that the the cardinal let's call them the cardinal pleasures don't justify the pain like if that's the only thing, if it's purely just like the direct physical pleasures that you can get, um, especially if you don't make goals, because I think goals is a big solution for nihilism too. And we can mm. get into that later on. But for me, if all you're doing is like getting high, playing video games, you know, sleeping with random people where there's no emotional connection and doing drugs and like, you know, just doing drugs and just nothing but like immediate gratification things. There's eventually a moment where you're, where you hit the limit for satiation on all of those, either like you're hungover as hell. You, you know, you've already slept with someone, you got bored of a video game. You always hit those limits where your body's just like, all right, this isn't fun anymore. And then when you hit those limits and you have no other option, 
you run into exactly the thing you were trying to run away from and the fact that you have no other option or you can't find anything else that's meaningful. And I think in part is because you haven't chosen anything in the world that has value and therefore there is no value in the world. It's like, but the moment you choose, like if you choose a, like a long-term goal, like I'm going to be this, well then things in front of you start to have value in relation to whether they get you to that goal or not, right? Like if you're like, I'm going to go to like, I'm going to go to college. It's like, all right, well now your actions can be compared to like, are they getting you closer to college or further away? They're getting you closer and you, you see that as a good thing. You like, it starts to reward you naturally. And that's what then builds a meaning to your life. Mm. I I want to turn the discussion a little bit. Um, I, I know that you were a psychology and a philosophy major. And I feel like, when we, when people are engaging in nihilistic uh, tendencies and philosophical behavior, psychologists don't really have like the language to describe that. Like, like in the DSM, there's no such thing as nihilistic disorder, but you know, so they will kind of treat it uh, as like, they'll use words like depression, suicidal ideation or something like that. Like, do you think it's helpful for, for people that are like suffering uh, from these psychological illnesses to kind of know the philosophical backdrop of what's causing them to hurt inside. Do you, do you think that's at all helpful or do you think the lay person doesn't need to know that? I think more and more, because like I believe that the idea, especially of like the Nietzschean God is dead moment, right? The fact of like, hey, this one system we built of knowledge is now going to undermine our old one, but that's what we're all standing on is starting to hit its critical mass or it has hit its critical mass. Um, especially now with coronavirus, we're going to be seeing a lot of death. Like we already are seeing massive amounts of death and looks like it's not going to stop. It likely will get worse. I think right now is a pivotal moment for people to start to understand how their belief systems work, how their minds work, and more importantly, how they can function and navigate a situation where they may not have a belief system, right? Cause like, if you don't have anything, any model of your own mind, and like, here's the, here's the thing about psychology real quick. Psychology and philosophy are very similar in that every single one, every single psychologist and philosopher has their own constructs for dealing with, with stuff. Like they're, they're all making their own ones. For me, Jung was super, super helpful because from my perspective, he was the only, he was one of the few big heavyweights that like have changed, you know, the science that took on this idea of like, Hey, you know, Nietzsche is right. How are we going to address this? How, cause like, cause he believed he's like, if you're in order for any therapist to be able to help their client, they have to have dealt with the problem themselves. Right. right? Yeah. So like if, if you, it's the idea of like, if you have unresolved issues with your dad, and then someone else comes in and asks you how to get help with unresolved issues with your dad, you're likely not going to be able to give him much advice because you yourself haven't done it. Right. And the best advice you have is only uh, abstracted advice that you learned from a books, which then doesn't give you any understanding of how hard or what it's going to be like, which then doesn't allow you to be authentic with your client, which then makes your client feel like they don't know what they're doing. So when they come and they're like, so like Jung would point out that like if a client comes and they're like, Hey, I'm, I'm really scared of death. I've lost my faith. If the, if the person that's trying to help them with that, right. Like, or that, you know, like I see no point in life. I can't 
justify my existence, but then the therapist can't justify their existence either. It's going to be really, really hard to convince someone else of something that you yourself aren't convinced of. So for me, I found Jung's insights into those problems much more useful than some of the more like behavioral therapy because it's kind of like the behavioral therapists though you know are i would say much more rock solid on their science than just about anyone else because it's also just easier to measure it's like what happens when we do x oh they do y got it like we can record this in a much more empirical way than most other views of psychology i think we it's really really hard to take on something that those kind of those kind of concepts without first addressing because because without like you can't just take that on as a as a behavior problem right you can't just be like oh well what's going on it's like well i can't sleep why can't you sleep because i'm afraid of death all right well let's start working with sleeping patterns to make you sleep better it's like it might work but it doesn't solve the problem it just kind of like yes yes it fixes the symptom that's being that like the problem is causing right Yes, yes. You know, you're absolutely right. It's like, it's not treating the root of the cause. It's just like, it, because like, you can kind of, you can put a bandaid on something, but if you need surgery, you need surgery. The bandaid isn't going to make a, a heck of a difference. I want to th- kind of think of it this way, though. It's like, with, you know, I, I gave earlier in the podcast, the history of nihilism and how these 20th sing, uh, century atheist thinkers really it was really like year 2000 hits and all of a sudden we have this huge upsurge in your sam harris and your dawkins and and your atheist philosophy when it was cool to be atheist yeah it was cool it was awesome it was fantastic but then you also at the same exact time have a rise in mass shootings and the second amendment has always been the second amendment it always has now we could argue that maybe access to assault weapons and all of these guns are are more readily available than they were back then. I, I, I can't really say for sure, but for general, you know, for all intents and purposes, buying a handgun in 1950 is virtually the same. Maybe it's even more restrictive today than it was back then, but you have this like nihilism uh, and, and atheism kind of rising as the millennium turns. And you also have mass shooting also, kind of uh, rising. And the psychologist will sit back and say, well, no, no, this is just an increase in, in mental disorder, or this is just, just, there's greater numbers of people with mental disorder that have access to guns. But I would argue that perhaps there's a positive correlation uh, between the increase of nihilistic thinking and, and gun ownership and, and mass shootings and so forth. Well, yeah, because I mean, it's, it... <sighs> I guess what what needs to be understood is like, why did these people do exactly that, right? Like why, what is the point of going in and destroying not just your entire life, but everyone's entire life that you are in some way connected with? And it's like, it's not even a revenge thing, right? Because a revenge thing is like, you go and shoot only your bully. Mm, right right like that's like you go and find the person that wronged you and you do it but like no this is like everything is wrong here humans are wrong here and none of us deserve to die like i i read a i was for like a talk i gave i was reading the writings of the columbine shooters and the stuff he writes is just it's insane it's it's i mean i guess yeah naturally insane but it's the sense of like 
I am better than all of you and all of you have not even recognized how amazing I am. Right. So therefore I will show you how amazing I am by destroying everything. I like, like his idea is like, I'm like his whole idea was like all mankind should be dead. That, right? That's well, that's, that's also an extension I think of narcissistic personality disorder. Right. There's definitely, I definitely see that there's shades of mental illness in there as well. I'm wondering if there has been, let's say a mass shooter who kind of looked at climate change, looked at uh, eating meat and, and sort of looking at like, and just kind of made like sat down and made a list of all the bad, like looked at the world wars, looked at the Holocaust and just came to the conclusion. Yeah. Human beings are all evil. We're destroying this planet. Therefore I'm going to do my part and kill as many people as possible. And if you think about it from a, from a nihilistic perspective there would be some logical consistency there like if you were uh, fully nihilistic you you could kind of like justify that i'm wondering if any of these shooters have come from that frame of mind yeah i i guess for me like once you get into the nihilism you you fall into the same problem right like to to even do one of these shootings you like because here's here's i think the the dangerous part of nihilism nihilism doesn't tell you what you should do but it removes the restriction of you not doing something. Does that make sense? So like, it's not like nihilism doesn't give you, give you a direction, No, it but doesn't. it opens you up to any direction. Right. Right. So like, right. cause, cause then like, then it becomes an arbitrary choice to some extent. It's, it's like, it's that idea of like nihilism leading to moral relativism. It's like, well, that, or the idea like if God doesn't exist, then all is permitted. Right. It's like, if there is no, external rule that is how things are supposed to be then things can and could be however we want them to be and at that point if i become a mass murderer who cares it's my interpretation and then you may say it's like yeah i care because you're going to kill me to which i'd say like well that's your interpretation right and like and it's like <laughs> you 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 take off all the guardrails for anything because it's like well there is no value here so this is this is the equivalent of me of all of us playing a you know online multiplayer game and I'm just the troll that's just going to go and ruin everyone else's day. Only it's like the only chance any of us have that existence. So the, the stakes are a little bit higher, but still the exact same conceptualization. Well, on the flip side, to play devil's advocate here, I'm wondering how many nihilists actually wake out of bed and say to themselves, there is no inherent meaning, but my inherent meaning is going to be the best darn good person I could ever be. I'm wondering like why it is that most of the nihilists that wake out of bed choose some kind of destructive path rather than a positive path. Like I'm, oh. I'm wondering, or, or maybe you have examples of nihilists who have chosen, like I'm going to commit myself to, uh, uh, you know, saving the <laughs> whales or something. Maybe, maybe they do exist. I don't know. Well, I, I would actually, yeah, I would argue the exact opposite point. I would argue that most most people that fall into the, yeah, I guess I'm struggling with my own definition of like the idea of nihilism, but like nihilism in the, you know, nihilism in that they're self-professed, right? Like they're like, there's no meaning to this life. I would say that most of them, well, actually I don't have any stats on this. So, but like, I, I would presume that most, if not many are actually not destructive. And the reason is I think there's a lot of them and I'm actually really glad they're not destructive because I think it would be way, way worse <laughs> if they were, right? Like, yeah, right, like, right. like for example, for me, at one point it got really bad and I was considering suicide. And one of the only reasons I signed up for Peace Corps later on was um, there was a nurse that came up to me 
and w- I was just kind of like talking to her about like my feelings and everything. And she's like, well, what do you want to do with your life? And it was this question of like, what is there to do here? Like, if this is just pointless and meaningless, like, what am I even supposed to aim at? Like, what's the point of all of this? And then like just a random thought, I was like, I don't know, maybe just to help people. Like out of everything I can think of, like the only thing I could kind of maybe be proud of is maybe if I help someone else. And he's mm. like, oh, so like a humanitarian. And I was like, oh, I, I, yeah, I guess. And then from there, like you see, like if you see my life, you can see me slowly start to orient towards that. But then at that point, that's a new adaption of new values. That's right. me being like, okay, well then I'm just going to presume that helping people and like humanism is the right way to go but i'm not consciously choosing to do that consciously i'm still like oh this is meaningless but what i'm acting out isn't as though life is actually meaningless right 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 so you're you you kind of have like the backdrop that like the choice is mine like it like there is no 100 percent set way it's it's not like christian dogma where there's like i must absolutely observe lent and and so forth at the same time within this black empty void i have the choice to subscribe to humanism and hell and humanitarianism and helping people as being my ultimate truth i suppose well yeah i guess i would say that that wasn't even what was going on for me for me i was still convinced i was a nihilist but mm. my actions were were more representative of someone that was that was believing in humanism or even just more easily that was continuing my judeo-christian values that I had learned since I was a child, but that no longer were conscious, that I had consciously rejected, but still was fully embodied in, right? right. Like I was still like, I was like, and, and that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is that when they say they're like, oh, I don't believe in God. I'm like, no, you just believe in most of the same moral principles that your religion believes in. So, okay, like you're still living quite <laughs> essentially the same way they wanted you to live anyway. So, all right. It comes from somewhere, you know? Right. Uh, like, I want to also like, let's, let's, let's like, you know, I like this idea of creating value out of nothing. I think that, that there, there is some beauty in that. I also want to push back on like the idea of atheism in general. And like, I'm going to be 100% honest out here. I am an agnostic. I have no idea whatsoever if there's a heaven, a hell. Sometimes I strongly believe in God. Sometimes I, I like any other human being, I have my doubts and, and, I, I, and I wonder and I question. But I think that that uncertainty is not a bad thing. I think it's, it's fundamentally the most truthful thing that we, we can do. And I, I think Socrates said like the most wisest man is the man who says, I don't know. And I think once you commit to atheism and you commit to full-blown nihilism, it's really hard to get out of that. And I, I, I think if you pivot your thinking a little bit more on the side of agnosticism with healthy skepticism, with doubt, but also some level of belief here and there that kind of oscillates, I, I think that's a much more healthier frame of mind to be in than full-blown 100% no God that's crystal clear book is the, the book is shut. Then, then, you know, I I just think that being just saying, I don't know is going to lead to a much better road than just 100% making up your mind. 
either in either direction. Like I would say this is as true for the person who subscribes to Christian dogma and, you know, believes that homosexuality is an abomination. I think that's like the other kind of extreme where it's like the Bible is a literal piece of text that needs to be followed. I think both of these polar extremes are, are just damaging to us. Yeah. And I, I would definitely agree with you on that end that like you, the best way to approach anything is always like with the, uh, I don't know, maybe like, here's my general thoughts on this stuff, but like, I'm just, I'm literally just a monkey on a spinning rock. I don't like for you to expect me to understand the reality of my conditions. It's like, come on, man, what do you want from <laughs> me here? Like, it's like we literally evolved from like nothing, like give me some props for the ideas that I do have. But uh, I guess the only, the only caveat I would add is that for me, I see it as, you should always be curious, but never presume you'll know, right? Mm. It's like life is the constant search for an answer that you'll never truly receive. I love that. I, I think that that's beautiful. And, and it takes, I, I think, you know, what I notice in both the zealot uh, religious fundamentalist and the atheist is there's no humility at all. Like both right. of them lack any form of humility and the ability to concede points and, and their worldview is the absolute truth. And I think this is like the road to damnation where you believe in, and, and, and again, I, I, I know I'm mentioning Christianity, but it could be any religion, any given religion, like this text is the most sacred thing. It's the absolute truth. And then you have the atheist who says there's no God. That's the absolute truth. It's like, you're completely limiting yourself and you're, Again, like I, I, I mentioned, it's like Dante's Inferno. You're committing the ultimate sin, and that's the one of pride and hubris. You think you have all the answers. You think, in a sense, that you are God or you are the absolute authority on how the universe works. Whereas I, I, I look around myself. I say I have a very limited cranium. I'm a human being. You know, we, we consider ourselves way more advanced than chimps and stuff, but you know, we probably come along the same ancestry. We're not, we're, we can't fly. We don't have telekinesis. Like just taking some, like taking a deep breath and saying, I'm human. I don't have all the answers. It's, it's like such a liberating thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing from, here, here's the biggest issue is we are evolved to not like not knowing things like mm. that. It, that plays to our survival. Right. So if, you know, if you're put in a room and then, you know, and you hear a random noise in there, you're going to go and check it out because you, you are not comfortable not knowing what's going on in there. If nothing's supposed to be going on in there, like we're, we're primed to seek that out. So being in that state constantly of being like, Oh, all of this could totally just be wrong. Like I could be living my life completely incorrectly. I, I think it's very hard for most people and especially people that have that haven't ever had that structure collapse on them. Cause right. it, I, I think that's what happens. Uh, Jung called this as like the initiations, like the initiation idea where it's like, once you come of age, there needs to be a, a collapse of basically your entire belief structure. And that is from when you are a child to when you become an adult. And it's like, why it's like, well, cause for 18 years of your life, you've been codependent on your parents, right? Like you've literally everything is framed in a certain way. There has to be a sometimes traumatic event that breaks you off from that and makes you have to become and think of a completely different person. And if you haven't had that, 
you're going to maintain that structure, but that also functions with like religious structures, right? Like if you've been raised always to always believe this, this just always works. And have, you've never taken that even apart a little bit or had that collapse on you a little bit by the time, you know, like the, the more time passes, the more invested you are on not changing that. Mm. Right. Because the, the less, the, the less and less capable you are of adapting. So yeah. it's, it's that idea of like, you're going to hang on to those ideas. You know, it's also, it also goes down to the idea of the ego in the sense that you find your self-identity in being an atheist or you find your self-identity in being uh, a, religious, uh, a religious person. And you tell people about this. I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Or you say, the Bible, the Bible. I'm a, pap- I'm a Baptist. I, I believe in this. And, and you, your, your identity becomes 100% intertwined in your religious philosophy, whereas you know, I, 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 one of the pieces of wisdom that I take from this is Buddhism and, and the idea of being nothing. If you're an agnostic, that allows you to adapt and have no ego. You don't have any hair in the game. You don't have stake in the game if the atheists are correct or if the religious fundamentalists are correct. It allows you to have that, that versatile mindset where you can kind of fluctuate uh, between what the situation really requires. Maybe if you're dealing with something that requires a scientific method, maybe you should put your faith aside just a tad, just a little bit and be like, okay, let's use the scientific method. Let's use empiricism to solve. Uh, like, 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 for example, COVID-19, right? I think that if we're trying to come up with a vaccine for COVID-19, praying may not do all that much. You know, like, like we, we can't right. just... Like, like there are Christian scientists out there that are like, just pray the disease away. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not enough at all. You know, you could find it helpful and I don't discourage you from doing that, but we need like scientists out there finding that vaccine. Like this disease will not go away without a vaccine. Um, But then in other situations, like you're dealing with someone that's cheating on you or you're dealing with someone who just murdered a loved one, that's where you kind of want to maybe back away a little bit from empiricism and start moving to some kind of faith or some kind of higher moral structure uh, to bring stability in your life. Yeah, because I, I, I think there's different kinds of truths, right? And I, I, think, I think what religion is trying to do is to convey a moral truth. Mm-hmm. Now, those are like, they vary slightly from different religions. And I think it's in part a reflection of where they come from, the different regions and all the different requirements that those regions had. But they also seem to circle along a, a lot of the same principles. Now, a lot of people kind of take religion to task for like their metaphysical claims. They're like, oh, they all think reality is completely structured different. It's like, yeah, probably because there are different stories told by different people. But it's like the more important thing is, what is the behavioral information that's being transferred by the religion? Like what is the religion, Mm. what kind of human being is the religion telling you to manifest? Right. Right. Like that's the, that's the most important part. Like what is, what is being asked of you to be like? Sure. You know, one thing, one thing I'll say is like, for example, I was born Jewish and in Judaism, there's always this call to action. Like you have to like just passively praying to God is in some ways frowned upon in Judaism. Like it's something you, you, there are prayers that you have to say like uh, before you go to bed or after a certain meal or before a certain meal. 
Uh, but in Judaism, they have the belief that like God doesn't just, you know, take his hand down and actually make vaccines and do any of that stuff for you. You have to do it. So I, I think this is like an example where it's like God is giving you the thumbs up and saying, yeah, use science, use empiricism, use all, you know, all of this, use stem cells, use all of the science at your disposal to get that objective done. And I, I think for some people, they either come down to, well, I just have to sit here and pray about it, or I, I am an action type, where I'm like, you can actually have both. You could spend 14 hours in a laboratory coming up with a vaccination, and then before you go to bed, just say a prayer to God and be like, God, if you could inspire me with some divine wisdom, now would be a great time. Like you, you, can, you can have, it's one of those few examples where you can have your cake and eat it as well. Yeah, that's a good point. So to kind of end off on this, I, I think that uh, in, the, in the last component, the last leg of our discussion uh, with truth is we need, you know, along the veins of agnosticism, we need to accept that certain people have different percentages of truth. So let, let's just say Karl Marx, for example. I, I, when I was in college, I read the first volume of Das Kapital. And maybe I agreed with 25% of it. Like I was like, yeah, you know, those industrialists in, in Germany were, were terrible. They, they made kids uh, work in these horrendous conditions. Like no one should have to put up with that. But I think we need to come as a society where it's like, I can embrace the 25% of Marx that I like, or the 55% of Nietzsche that I like, or the 90% of Socrates that I like, or the 85% of Plato. And us as individuals, we need to do the difficult sorting work of being like, okay, what percentage do I agree with this person? What do I disagree with? How can I incorporate what I agree with into my worldview? How can I dis disregard what I don't agree with? And I think kind of having that agnostic framework helps in doing that because you are able to look at theories, religious ideas, and people with that skepticism and not... Uh, basically accepting or rejecting the, the, the whole sum of the parts, so to speak. Right. And this is something that I learned when I was, when I first started studying philosophy, which was something that was pretty important and that I think most people didn't know is that for most of my life, before I started reading philosophy, any book I would read for a class was just telling me the truth. Like it was telling me the things I needed to know, right? So like history, chemistry, math, you know, all this is just like, even literature is mostly just like telling you what the story was. And like, all right, cool. Maybe there's some subtext and stuff, but for the most part, it's pretty straightforward. And what for philosophy, what I found that was very different and that took me a while was, I can't remember who the first philosopher was that I read. It may have been, may have been Nietzsche. And really? Well, I started with Socrates, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I, I remember reading, reading it and being like, oh my God. Like this is 100% right. Like every single argument is just like spot on, logically consistent, makes perfect sense. This guy got the truth down. Right. Right. But then I would read other philosophers and I'm like, oh my God, this guy's totally right. Perfectly consistent, 100% logical. And then I would compare the two and be like, oh wait, these things are completely contradictory. Like they cannot both exist. They cannot both be right. And what I found was, the more I was exposed to different philosophies, the more it allowed me to be able to kind of shift 
between perspectives, which I, I personally think one, one of the possible solutions to our postmodern conundrum is stop seeing truth as one single unity and start seeing different versions of truths as an interpretation of a of, of the truth like the the full encompassing reality it's like you know like the marxists you know see everything in the view of material realism the idea is like look who actually has things who what wh who's suffering and most of it seems to be pretty economic right it's like yeah m a lot of those observations are true but that's not the only one that's that's the, not the only interpretation of reality that is valuable and right your interpretation interpretation of reality naturally has to exclude most of the actual reality, just like any other interpretation does, right? Any interpretation of reality, you are only picking very specific ideas, linking them together and telling a story with them. Um, but I, I think for everyone, always be careful about the first thinker that you fall, fall in love with, right? It's like, <laughs> well, because then they'll just always seem right all the time. And exactly. if you refuse to expose yourself to other thinkers that completely contradict them and not not read them as though they're attacking your beliefs because they at that point they are right like if you've only read one person those are the beliefs you have and the right. re reading someone who's critical of that immediately comes off as like you're attacking me not just this person but me and it goes in line with like your ego now is in the same bag with Nietzsche because you fell right. in love with Nietzsche, you identify with him, your identity and your ego is in his hands right now. So if someone is attacking Nietzsche, they're attacking you as a human being and, and what you've uh, placed your identity in. Right. Also, and my identity is now dependent on hit the strength of his arguments rather yes, than my own. Yes, exactly. The other thing I kind of want to say is that with this percentage of truth, I think it also fluctuates depending on what's going on in the world around us. Like, I think there's times where Marx has 25% truth, but let's just say the capitalists go really crazy and we start putting seven-year-olds back into factories. His truth value may shoot up to 50% or 60% or 70%. Like it, it depends kind of like on the context as, as what's going on. Like, uh, like, like let's just say, we don't just zoom in on Marx's ideas, but let's say we have like an over-regulated economy. Let's just say we're using that as an example. Well, if everything is pretty honky-dory and like people are working eight hours, they're getting their overtime, there's health, you know, we have universal health care and everything is pretty fine. And, you know, there could be an argument, oh, we need to kind of ease up on regulations a bit. But then if there's this mass wave ex of exploitation coming, yeah, you really want some like higher regulations. You want the government to kind of step in and, and, and doing that. So I, I think when you look at the truth, you have to look at the context in which that truth is being presented in. Because like you could present one truth and the context just does not match that theory at that particular moment. And yeah, and that's kind of why I, I personally try to see different versions of truths as as frameworks as like kind of like a lens right like you i see i see and, and i see interpretations as truths as tools mm -hmm. so like for example right now where we have a huge amounts of unemployment more and more capital starting to accumulate at the top right it's like people are really starting to hurt. Like the bottom parts of the social hierarchy are starting to run dry, right? Like there's just like, people are really, really hurting right now. It's like, okay, 
I can see where a Marxist framework paints and points to the exact problems and how what might be causing them. It's like now the solution is the next question, right? It's like, well, does, could we use the solution and should we? It's like, ah, that, you know, I can, I can pull from other people I read where I'm like, okay, I, I don't know. And for me, my personal experience, I'm like, what are the chances of our little utopia dream here that we're trying to establish or even just, not even utopia, just our solution to the current hellhole we're in. What are the chances that that ends up like Cambodia? Right. I mean, you right. know, because if it's not zero, I'm not willing to bet that because I don't give a shit how poor you are in America. It is not Jack. It's nothing <laughs> compared to the hellhole that people had to go through in Cambodia. No, right? And like, it's like in Cambodia was pretty similar, like was culturally very similar to the U S and like a lot of the things that you would expect a lot more things than you would expect. But then you see the country now, especially like just 10, 20 years ago. And it was, it was completely devastated like to say it was decimated is a complete understatement because it was one in like one in four to one in five people were killed wow wow so it's like yeah not worth it for me and that's you know and again like this takes a very trained mind to do this to be like wow marx is correct in diagnosing the problem but his treatment option is not really a, a good a good way forward. So it's like we get our 30% of Marx being correct in diagnosing. Yeah, there are, there is a bourgeoisie and they're controlling the means of production and, and capital is not evenly distributed, but like his treatment option of like, well, the state should come in and take over everything isn't the right option. And it's like, if you don't really think about these things highly deeply and very thoughtfully it's an all or nothing it's an all or nothing like he's 100% wrong or we need to like put his picture up there next to Lenin in red square like there is no in between right. and there's no uh, middle ground yeah well, I think a lot of people do struggle with that I also think a lot of people just don't read much theory anymore like I think everyone's it's like it's just so much so much more work and I, I think so many people just kind of take an easier simplified view of theories because they're because they're not really that invested in it. They're just invested in making the arguments, right? They're just invested in like fighting rather than solving the problem. And like, I, I feel like one of the biggest issues, and I, this is what I, the, the biggest issue I have with uh, very far left, like even, even the Marxist left um, is that they presume that everyone understands their theory. Is that right. anytime you try to say, it's like, uh, does this just mean that you're going to kill all businesses and kill all the rich people? And they're like, oh, no, obviously you haven't <laughs> read Marx. And I was like, I was like, no, no. See, like, that's the problem though. What makes you think that the person that's going to be in charge reads and understands Marx? I was like, Pol Pot ran a fully communist city or a fullest communist state, like re try to return it to, a, to an agrarian nation, ended up killing millions and he himself is quoted as uh, not really getting marks even right. though that was his entire theory was based on so it's like okay you may have a great awesome interpretation don't presume that that's what the the people that are in charge are gonna have right like you should be prepared to like what happens if people just completely fuck this up like yeah. what happens if they give you the worst reading of marks or the most selfish reading of marks or the darkest interpretation of that it's like, what does that look like? Because that is a possibility and it's one that you can't just ignore either. You know, and it, it's funny because I, I see the same example in uh, Russia, for example, like 
Lenin was an intellectual heavyweight. He read and read and read and read. He read a lot of books. Stalin was like little intellectual. Like he, he did, he was not all into the Marxist thing. He was like, how can I serve Stalin? How can I serve myself? How can I gain power? So you might have people that kind of use that philosophy as a facade to just make a power grab. Like they don't, they either have not read Marx or they have a bad understanding or they have an understanding, but they just don't quite frankly care. Like I think Stalin just blatantly did not care what Marx had to say. He was just using that as a Trojan horse to kind of centralize power in himself. Yeah. And I, I, I think this, I mean, I don't want to pick too much on the left because I think it's just as much on the right. I think like you can see in the Republican party, everyone always talking about deficit spending until yeah. it's their turn, right? Like suddenly it's not a big <laughs> issue, but, but th these ideas of like, most people just want to believe that ideas easily translate into the world or that they could translate. And it's like, no man, most people don't spend that much time thinking about this stuff. And the people that do tend to not be the ones that are in charge. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's normally not the intellectual elites that we're ruled by. Right, right. It's the political class. It's, it's, it's like the the political class will take stuff from the intellectual elites that work. Like it's it's it, they see it as a tool in the same way. So it's like, yeah, you you may have great utopian ideas or even just ideas for solutions for. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna cut you off there, Rogers. I, I think that that's actually a topic for another podcast. Like why yeah, we're not ruled by the intellectual elites. The philosopher king. Yes. <laughs> that being said, that concludes our podcast. I'm Aaron Azarod. And I'm Roger Armandadis. See you for our next part.